This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. As always, I've got my right-hand man, Kellen Finney, here with me. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Fabian Monaco, CEO of one of the hottest cannabis companies out there, Gage Cannabis. Fabian, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? Yeah, thanks a lot for having me on. I'm doing great. Appreciate it. So I think before we dive in, I'd love for our listeners to kind of get a little bit about your background and how you got into the cannabis space. For sure. I used to be on the investment banking side of things. I had joined uh, the team that just brought Tweed public. Uh, they had brought Tweed, which is obviously now Canopy Growth, public about five or six months before I joined. I was really lucky. I got to work on a lot of the firsts of the industry, You know, the first acquisition in the industry uh, where uh, Tweed bought Bedrocan, uh, the first IPO, the first $100 million financing. So I was really, uh, really blessed with those opportunities. And then they kind of just led me more on the uh, merchant banking side of things. And uh, we started Gage uh, a little over three and a half years ago with two of the pretty much the best operators, uh, at least that I saw. I've been to, I I can't even, I can't even remember how many cultivation assets that I've toured and visited. And uh, just was really impressed with these two operators, uh, the two main co-founders of Gage and, um, you know, Really, really took a liking to them and their thought process and their connection to the cannabis culture. And um, yeah, like I said, started it three and a half years ago. And here we are today. Yeah, and I'm excited to kind of dive into that and some of the concepts and the ideas that Gage has brought to market and some of the amazing opportunities that you've done. So before we dive in, let's start with some of the hardest questions. What is your go-to meal after consuming cannabinoids? I'd probably say a burger. So like, I, you know, my, my background's Italian, so I, I do love Italian food, but I, I would say hands down, a good burger is, 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 is really something I enjoy. Nice cheeseburger. What's your go-to cheeseburger place? In-N-Out? Hey, In-N-Out is great. I honestly, I, I try so many all the time and uh, really don't have like one particular favorite, but In-N-Out is most definitely top-notch. Shake Shack <laughs> is right at the bottom of our office, actually, in Troy, Michigan. Really like Shake Shack as well. And sauce is fire. Yeah. So. Let's dive into some of the questions. Gage, can you share a little bit about the backstory and the value they play in the industry? And then from there, take us into the cookies and, and the value they play as well. Yeah. So, so from a Gage standpoint, you know, we, we really wanted to focus on our brand right off the bat, focused on flour to start as well. You know, flour is the queen of the industry still, uh, probably accounts for close to 60% of our sales right now in this quarter. And something we really put a lot of time and effort into. It's not just about you know growing a good product. We also put a lot, a lot of effort and time into the post production process. And I think that was what really helped us elevate our brand really quickly. That kind of focus on flour, that kind of category of the value chain of the industry, again, really allowed us to jump to the forefront of branding in Michigan. Our partnership with Cookies, you know, that you brought up. An illustrious brand out of you know out of San Francisco, California. We have a great relationship with them. They're they're the Nike of the space. They're the Red Bull of the space. You know, whatever you want to call it, the Coca Cola of the space. Uh, we've learned so much from them. It's really also helped us elevate our brand to uh, you know a quasi similar level in Michigan. And for us, you know, just focusing on the brand to start, and we, and we sell a lot of our you know the majority of our product through our retail channels as well. You see a lot of the MSOs. Kind of take on a more wholesale strategy, which again, I'm not trying to knock that strategy, but for us, we really wanted to control the narrative, control how our consumer was, you know, receiving the product, educate the consumer at how great our product is. Um, and that's really been beneficial for not only expanding the gauge brand in Michigan, but also the cookies brand. Yeah, the branding on both your sides is incredible. So let's talk about that partnership. How did the origin of that relationship start? And then 
was that a key decision when going forward with Gage? Yeah. So I think, you know, the two co-founders had a good relationship with Burner. I think they've been talking to him for, you know, probably a good solid four or five years. Finally minted a relationship officially about two years ago, signed a five-year exclusive agreement with the Cookies brand uh, for processing, cultivation, and retail. So really, um, you know, that's that's how it all started. They developed the relationship. I mean, Cookies has been around for, for many, many years, you know, kind of nurtured that relationship, showed them who we were, showed them the type of quality that we would bring to their brand as well. Because it's so important, especially for brands, when you're picking a partner, even for us, when we pick our you know, contract manufacturing partners that we have in Michigan, we go through a painstaking process. We make sure that those partners are top-notch because the last thing you want to do, you spend so much time, effort, blood, sweat, and tears into a brand, and then you kind of give it to someone else and they tarnish it for you. So I think that, you know, we really developed, uh, or at least Cookies developed that comfort with us as a team, as a company to say, hey, you know, we were their first, actually, we were their first partner outside of California. They obviously have a whole variety of partners now across the U.S., but two years ago, we were the first one. We were the first ones to open a cookie store outside of California as well. So there's a lot of trust involved there, and I think we've repaid that trust uh, quite a bit by being you know, one of their best operators. I definitely agree with that. So let's kind of dive into the, the day-to-day. Cannabis industry is absolutely exploding. So can you take us through what a normal day-to-day is like for you and how you kind of keep up to date on all the trends in such a hyper-growth industry? Yeah, look, I mean, day-to-day is is pretty wild these days, especially, you know, we've been publicly traded now for almost two months, or actually a little over two months now. You know, a lot of the focus is on capital markets initiatives. Um, you know, the two co-founders are really heavy on the operational side of things. And because the industry is moving so fast, you just always got to be at the forefront, you know, following other brands, seeing what they're doing, what products they're introducing, you know, what kind of flavors of flour your competition is coming out with. Funny enough, you know, keeping a pulse in the kind of, you know, culture of cannabis as well, you know, like you know, what are people enjoying? What are they looking for these days? Are they liking gelato strains? Okay, if they like gelato strains and those are popular, let's have a bunch of more of those on our shelves. Or let's start, you know, crossing some of our previous gelato strains together to create a, you know, kind of a new strain and a new flavor for our consumers to, to have. So, it's really multifaceted. And for us as well, as we're expanding so quickly, you know, moved from two cultivation facilities to now eight, you know, soon to be nine that are in operation that are growing Gaging Cookies branded product, or even five retail locations at the end of last year to now, you know, nine as well, and hoping to move that to close to 20 uh, by the end of this year. It's really just a whirlwind. We're working on so many opportunities and so many things. And then, you know, I spend a lot of time too, like I said earlier, following other brands, uh, especially on social media. I think social media is so important these days to really get your brand out there. We're part of a great network, obviously, with Burner, Rick Ross, and, you know, a couple of the other partners of Cookies. Um, and we're in that kind of ecosystem, but following some of the other brands, seeing, you know, what kind of cool packaging they're coming out with, how they're presenting, you know, their product and looking for, you know, new product categories to bring to the Michigan market as well. That's really well said. So Kellen, from your side, how do you stay up to date on all the trends and kind of expand on some of the areas that Fabian mentioned? No, and I think that staying up to the on all the trends is so important. I mean, this industry changes so quickly. Um, the only way I've been able to do it is just by networking, talking to people and actively going to dispensaries, different ones as much as you can. I mean, I'm lucky enough to be on Colorado, uh, a little different than New York, eh, Brian? <laughs> Soon though, right? Soon. <laughs> and so, you know, it's like going to a liquor store these days in Colorado. It's been around for a while, you know, and I always go in and talk to bud tenders. I mean, it's wild how much power those people have behind the counter in terms of pushing product and and understanding what kind of is trending this way and that way. It'd be 
The other thing that I find so interesting is kind of that dynamic between, and you mentioned this, Fabian, in terms of like gelato strain selling and trying to increase that as a product that you can put on the shelves. I mean, that balance has to be so challenging because say it's June and someone wants something that's more attractive for the summer, like a mango or something, right? In terms of a strain and you react to that. But by the time that it takes a while to grow flour, by the time you can increase inventory in that specific strain, it could be October and the consumer's preference could completely change to, I don't know, like a pumpkin spice or something, right? Like, (laughs) and so that balance has got to be so challenging. I mean, how do you guys tackle that in all the different states? Is it kind of like each state operates as its own entity or do you guys kind of have like a, an overarching strategy where you're like, okay, across the West coast, we're going to kind of focus on these main strains. Could you kind of describe that? that challenge or that obstacle? For us right now, we're, we're still a single state operator. So we don't have those challenges per se. Uh, we're, we're solely in Michigan and the brands available uh, in Canada as well. I would say, you know, to, to your point, again, it's, it's it's not something where, hey, everyone's really liking, you know, this type of strain or, or, or these types of, you know, flavors. Let's all of a sudden throw something into production and next week we're going to get uh, some fruits from our labor, right? It, it, it's more of a long process, obviously, especially when you're growing cannabis from, uh, from seed to smoke. So again, it's just, it just, again, trying to stay well-connected to the cannabis culture, um, you know, talking to a variety of operators as well, even sometimes competitors, you know, it's a very inclusive industry, I still find. And yes, you know, uh, you do have fierce competitors, but also it's, it's pretty much uh, a family. And you learn a lot from your competition as well. So I think also, you know, places like Colorado, especially also California, they kind of help drive the trends. So stuff you see in California kind of comes a little bit, you know, later on in in some of the other states. And so uh, we're always, you know, watching what, you know, Cookies is doing in California, what's popular there. Okay, blunts are popular. Okay, wow. So blunts are really, really doing well. A lot of the cookie stores in Cali. So let's let's put a plan in place because we think we'll do equally as well in a place like Michigan. So you know that's a product category that we hope to have introduced over the next uh, you know couple months here. And so it's just things like that, right? Really looking at the leader being California or even places like Colorado where it's a little bit more mature. Looking at those trends because you seem to have a little bit of a lag in some of the other states, especially in Michigan. Not a crazy lag, but again enough time to to really you know position yourself properly. This is my favorite question because I think about this constantly. And from someone in your position, you're the ideal person to ask. Damien, how do you balance kind of growing the organization in one state or even expanding to other states, as well as optimizing what you're currently doing? How do you you balance that relationship? It's not easy. It's not easy at all, right? I'd say that's the, the most, let's call it, difficult part of the industry, We've had fluctuations in terms of access to capital for uh, quite a few years now. I would say maybe in 2018, things were going pretty well. The 19 hit went through a little bit of a downturn. First couple months of 2020, my, you know, those look pretty scary as well. Uh, then now we've had a little bit of a resurgence, especially into the fall, uh, late fall, or, you know, winter, and obviously earlier on in the year where you know, cannabis was flying high, obviously on the back of potential regulation. So it's hard because you're trying to balance out your growth with also your access to capital, you know, whether you should be refining things within your own current operation in order to you know, boost profitability, boost margins, or whether you, know, you should be focused on growth, market share, et cetera. Right? So it's a fine balance. It's something that you, 
got to really have, you know, keep your pulse on, especially from a, from a funding standpoint, you know, we're well capitalized, really didn't take on any, uh, crazy debt or, you know, sale leaseback transactions in a material way to uh, potentially, you know, hurt the company in the future with, you know, tough payment obligations. So again, we've positioned ourselves well, but it's, it's always something we keep our pulse on just to see, okay, you know, what's access to capital looking like these days? How's the market performing? How's our stock performing? You know, will we have the opportunity to access further capital or, you know, should we focus on, again, refining our current operations once, you know, capital starts to open up again? then we'll you know, quickly change to focusing on growth. And again, it's not as easy as you know, changing that on the dime, but it's something that's a, it's, it's really a fine balance at the end of the day. That must be such a challenge to have that dynamic flexibility in your conversations with your leadership team and your day-to-day with kind of positioning the team saying, hey, you know, for the next couple of weeks, we're going to focus here. And then, for example, legislation starts to discuss uh, changing and then there's these new opportunities or states come online. So that balance must be really, really finite and, and it must change kind of rapidly. Yeah, no, it, it does. Right. And it can be frustrating too, right? Because our organization, we're, we're approaching, I think, 400 employees now. And obviously people want, uh, want direction, right? And so sometimes if you're kind of flip-flopping too much or you're not staying focused on the grand plan, it can be frustrating, right? And it's something we try to avoid. It's something where we try to, you know, stay true to our plan, talk, seeing how we're going to progress over the next couple months and always have, you know, constant interaction with each other as a leadership, you know, amongst the leadership team and the founders to ensure that, you know, we're making the best decisions for, for, for the company. But again, that's not always as easy because at times you got to make tough decisions say, Hey, I know we're going down this path, guys. I know we've been working really, really hard, but we're going to have to transition quickly here. And sometimes, you know, it's met with disappointment, but, you know, people understand. And I think, We've been around now for, for a couple of years, not as long as, as some of the MSOs, but you know, we're approaching, you know, two years of operation here over the next couple of months. And I think, you know, more and more just the culture, you know, starts to get ingrained and people recognize, hey, like this is an exciting industry. It's really, really fun, but it's also a challenging one. And once you kind of accept the fact that it's going to be challenging, it makes it so much better because if you get worked up too much with the small little challenges that arise on a daily basis in this industry, it could really kill you. Yeah, I think that's perfectly said. Well, let's let's talk about one of those challenges. I read in one of your investment reports that one of the goals of Gage is to bring 90% of Michigan's population within 30-minute radius, as well as opening one store every month. Is that still the plan? Can you update on us on that? And how actually challenging is that to accomplish in an industry that is looking for people amidst the global pandemic that thankfully we're on the back end, as well as in a really competitive landscape? Let's talk about Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. That's right. No more excuses. Get your lazy ass off the couch. Go start a podcast. There's the creation tool that allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Once again, no more excuses. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. Could it be easier? Even better, you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. That's right. They're paying us for this ad. Thank you very much, Anchor. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started now. Yeah, no, look, it's a tough goal. No doubt. It's an aggressive goal, but one that we think we can achieve by the end of the year. Uh, right now, with the, with the portfolio of retail that we have, uh, can reach you know 90 plus percent of the population within a one hour's drive. Really going to want to drive that down to close to 20 locations by the end of the year and having, you know, those 20 locations reach 90 plus percent of the population within a quick 
uh, you know, 20 to 30 minute drive. I think, you know, that that last part is important because, you know, in Michigan, you have dynamic delivery as well. So it really gives you the opportunity to have a pretty robust delivery program. We haven't introduced something like that just yet. We only have about one or two cars in our in our portfolio right now that do delivery. Haven't really advertised it much, but just really starting that program and and trying to figure out what's the best way to tackle the delivery program in Michigan. And so we'll be rolling that out in Q3. And um, you know, if we can keep up with the expansion of our retail, you know, we don't have to be someone like a True Leaf to open you know 80 plus stores in in in, in Florida. Like obviously, Florida's what two and a half size and a half times, sorry, the size of, of Michigan, maybe even three times uh, nowadays. Um, but, you know, with that being said, we don't need to open up that many locations in order to achieve, you know, same same store growth sale, uh, growth in sales. And so, you know, that's a pretty important factor for us. And we've really tried to, you know, scatter our retail down to a science to say, hey, you know, once we've established, you know, a good solid 20 to 30 locations, which we think is a sweet spot in Michigan, Let's make sure we have them properly placed so that we can reach the majority of the population within a quick drive and, and vice versa. The majority of the population can actually come to our dispensary if they choose within a quick drive as well. You can only dream of being able to drive to an hour to go get adult use, but soon, soon I have to just be <laughs> yeah, patient. Soon enough, yeah. <laughs> now it's like Boston, which is a hike. Uh, sometimes it's worth it though, right? The East Coast, largely untapped. Strategically, there's numerous areas to plant a gauge flag. How do you evaluate each state strategically from a capital standpoint? And how do you know it's worthwhile to, say, go to Maryland or to try to get into New Jersey? Can you take us through how you evaluate new markets and and how to think about entering those spaces? Well, it's education first off, right? Uh, the the, you know, the first thing we really, really try to you know not be overconfident with what we've done in, in Michigan or what we've done with the brand in Michigan. Uh, we really try to educate ourselves. And so we've been doing that over the past couple of months, taking a look at the licensing dynamic, taking a look at the players, uh, who the competition is, you know, what makes them special, what, the, you know, kind of the quality that's, uh, you know, available within uh, various markets. And in some markets, you know, surprisingly, you know, at least us, it, it's shocking that, you know, the quality that they have uh, relative to Michigan. Michigan, you have these phenomenal operators that basically have been in business since the 2008 caregiver program. And with that, you know, you, you have good competition. So for us, it's encouraging, uh, mainly because, A, you know, we're doing quite well in a quasi-competitive market, maybe not as competitive as a place like California or Colorado, but again, pretty competitive market. And then when we look to other states, again, it's, you know, we try to see how, how can we perform, you know, go into dispensaries, take a look, see how they're being run, how they're performing based on how they're being run. To say to ourselves, okay, like this is a really, really well-run dispensary. You know, we, we may not be able to do much better than this, or the complete opposite, where it's like, wow, like this dispensary is doing exceptionally well, and we know we can do two times better here because uh, they're doing this, this, and this. Not necessarily wrong, but we would change. You know, this, this, and this. So these are the type of things that we look at to see, like, what's our best bang for a buck from a shareholder standpoint. You know, we really want to be prudent with shareholder capital. We have been for so long. And, you know, our first acquisition or the, you know, the first move we have into another state, we want to make sure it's the right one. And uh, again, back to my first point, just education, really educating ourselves so we can make the best decision possible. Do you have a team of individuals or or specific individual that goes and researches those opportunities to kind of provide like a scoring matrix for for you and your leadership team on making those decisions? Can you kind of shed some light on, on how that thought process works? 
No, I'd say that, you know, the, the leadership team is pretty hands-on, you know, so the two, the two founders, they're really, really hands-on. They're the kind of boots on the ground that are doing most of the uh, the diligence work from an operational standpoint and, and from a market standpoint. Obviously, we have a bunch of finance uh, geeks, so let's call them, and, and lawyers on our team. Uh, and they're going to get really mad that I call them finance geeks, but uh, a bunch of guys on our team to really, you know, obviously drill down into whether it makes sense from a financial standpoint. And obviously from a legal standpoint, we take that counsel uh, very seriously to say, hey, what is the path of least resistance to, you know, getting a deal done in, in, in state X or state Y? And so this is the type of analysis we do. You know, we do still have, you know, decent amount of confidence in how we operate. It's not going to be rocket science for us, right? Sure, there'll be a couple tweaks to the rules in each and every respective state, but we know how to grow cannabis, we know how to process cannabis, and we know how to run retail. Yes, again, there'll be quasi-different rules in each and every state, but we're pretty confident that we can come into a state and at least kind of hit the ground running. Kellen, dive into that side, right? From the East Coast standpoint, what Fabian was saying about making the decisions and kind of weighing the pros and cons. When you're here on the East Coast, obviously, it's very different in California and Colorado. So how would you go about that approach as well? I mean, the East Coast is going to be, I think, a completely different beast to tackle than the West Coast. I think just looking at how a lot of the high value markets have structured their license process, it's it's a limited license kind of situation, right? Like New York and Florida, these are your high density population centers, right? And so it's going to be, it's going to require a lot more capital to kind of own a, a square, if you will, on the East Coast. And so I agree with Fabian in, in terms of it's you have to have your executive team and the people that are going to be making those decisions. They have to go see it for themselves. They have to be boots on the ground. I mean, these kind of decisions are going to cost a ton of capital to enter these high density markets from a population perspective. And in order to make sure that you're making the best decision you possibly can, you're going to need to go experience it and get your hands on exposure to those markets and and see what the the medical space has been doing and and kind of make friends with that whole community there as well because a lot of it has to do with the bud tenders once the whole thing gets up and going and kind of what products they push and kind of the culture of what's being talked about and so it's going to be a lot more challenging than kind of the west coast and like for instance like washington right state of washington if you will uh they gave out anyone that wanted a license could go get a license and you just saw so many brands that as a consumer, when you entered a dispensary three, four years ago, even nowadays, it's there's 2,500 different products on the shelf. Like, How are you supposed to get brand recognition if you're in a marketplace like that? But the barrier to entry was a lot simpler versus the East Coast, there's going to be significantly less brands on the shelf. So you're going to have a higher potential to generate that brand awareness, right? But they know that. So it's going to cost more money. So I think that strategically, the amount of due diligence that's going to be required to enter the East Coast, I think is is astronomically higher than something that should be approached on the West Coast, at least for, from my perspective. And relationships have to matter in these limited license states, because if you have limited amount of opportunities, the relationships have to be key to knowing, okay, this person's interested in selling, but they've been approached by Cresco. They've been approached by Truly. So Fabian, from that standpoint, boots on the ground has to be critical because you're forming those relationships with these, these opportunities that might be limited in their opportunities for growth. Oh, no, it, it, it makes an incredible difference. I mean, having having even, again, just the, the, the relationships with other producers, uh, you know, you know, for us, we're, we're an inclusive brand. We don't just have Gage branded or Cookies branded product within our store. 
of a whole variety of brands. And so, you know, in, in, in a very, you know, tight market, it's, it's similar to how you said, you know, it's going to be important to actually, you know, build these relationships in order to ensure you have supply for your stores. And so, you know, that's pretty key as well, because the last thing, and especially in a tight supply market, you don't want to open a store and have absolutely no product to sell. No, it sounds like a complete disaster. So I had a random thought that's been kind of puzzling me recently. And I think the best way to ask it is, so with Pennsylvania, it's still a medical market. And all of a sudden, randomly, two, three months ago, it got really, really hot from um, an acquisition standpoint, right? You saw all these big MSOs coming in there. And and, the, and me and Brian were talking to each other. And we're like, do they just know something that we don't? Or is it like one of the big players was like, oh, I have a friend in Pennsylvania. Let's go there. And then everyone else just kind of plays follow the leader. Do you know have any insights into kind of how some of these random markets all of a sudden just become so hot from an MSO perspective? Um, I think, you know, first off, the, the the opportunities are a little bit limited from a retail standpoint there. And then, you know, secondly, everyone has, you know, 16 locations that they can open. I think that's the limit in Pennsylvania. And so you want to make sure those 16 are, are, are as best as possible, right? So there was a little bit of a rush to go and get those, you know, the best, the best, you know, located dispensaries in that state. I think also, to be totally honest with you, Kate, if you look at the dynamic of Pennsylvania, look at the consumption habits, I'd say quasi similar to Michigan, you're seeing what Michigan is doing when it went from, you know, um, a medical program to now an adult use program. And I think, you know, from their perspective, they're looking at that and saying, okay, Michigan's approaching a $2 billion market right behind Colorado and California, obviously never going to catch California. But, you know, Pennsylvania very much so has the ability to be just as big if they can get to, to adult use. That's a big if, you know, I think if you kind of remain at, you know, simply medical only, it's gone really, really well for a place like Florida, but you know they have close to what twenty five to thirty million people these days. Pennsylvania a little bit more than Michigan. I think it's you know twelve or thirteen million there. It's pretty key to make sure that that turns into adult use, in my humble opinion, to really take advantage of some of the prices they've been paying for for a dispensary for a single dispenser or let's say a pack of three dispensaries. So yeah, I think that's that's overall what people are are thinking, or at least maybe the, at least that's my thought process on that. They're looking at Michigan. They're seeing, you know, similar demographics, similar progression. You know, same with place like Maryland, where it's medical potential to go to rec, and you know what that inflection point will bring. And if you are limited in the amount of locations you can have, hey, you know, you want to make sure you get the best, you know, top notch locations possible because you really want to make those sixteen as best and as big as you can. That makes a lot of sense, actually. Thank you. I was I didn't even consider that, so that's good insight there for sure. And I think uh, I was checking headset data last week. And I think Michigan is bigger than Colorado now. I think they did more sales in April than, or in May than Colorado did. So they, oh, they wow. Colorado. <laughs> right on. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. I know we're still, uh, I know headset has some um, data, but um, sometimes it differs slightly to uh, what we have uh, from the state. Usually yeah. the MRA in Michigan post, uh, post those numbers on a monthly basis. Um, so those should be coming out soon. I'd be eager to see how they do. Yeah, I think headset does do a little kind of predictive analysis based on past um, sales, if I remember correctly. So it would right be on. curious those, those numbers are. Yeah, that'd be a pretty big jump, though. I mean, we're, I think Colorado's in and around close to 200 now in terms of monthly sales. No, I think they're at like 149 and Michigan was at like 154. Uh, I could. Oh, be wow. Yeah, they, they definitely overtook it. So I was like, oh, no, but it makes sense. Because <laughs> the I mean, there's like twice the population in Michigan than there is in Colorado. So it's only it was sure. only my opinion. No, totally. totally. 
Totally. I'm going to ask a question about that. Do you think that has to do with the fact that Colorado has been online a lot longer and the consumers are kind of a little more comfortable where in Michigan, the bus is still really hot and people are still, I think, kind of curious with the, the term that I heard thrown around a lot yesterday. Do you think that has to play into that? Um, I, I honestly, I think it's just, 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 you know, what Kellen said before, it's mainly population. It's mainly population, right? I think you have you know, super strong consumption habits in Colorado and equally equally as high on a per capita basis in Michigan. Uh, obviously, Michigan really does enjoy their their cannabis, but it really comes down to, to population, which you know is not always a determining factor. But I think when you compare you know, two states that, again, have strong consumption habits from a, from a cannabis standpoint, the larger population is going to win. Makes sense. So Gage has done a terrific job with their capital light strategy. Can you take us through what the future product roadmap looks like? So I think you're going to still see a, a huge focus from us on flour. Uh, as I mentioned earlier on this on this podcast, you know, there's uh, there's just still strong demand for flour, especially in a place like Michigan. And we see it across across North America. Uh, flour is queen. It's a queen of the categories. Uh, when you include pre-rolls, it's something for the majority of sales. It counts for the majority of our sales. I think, you know, in Q2, uh, we'll probably see flour be, you know, 60 to 65% of our sales when including, uh, you know, pre-rolls. So overall, um, you know, that will continue to remain our focus. Uh, with our expansion, you know, with our contract manufacturers, as you mentioned, the Capital Light model, and basically bringing our own product to our shelves, Gage and Cookies branded products, sorry, from a flour standpoint, on our shelves for essentially zero cost to us. Uh, you know, we don't pay for the CapEx of these facilities. We don't pay for the OpEx. Uh, they pay for our packaging or testing and our secure transporting in Michigan. It's a great way to expand, you know, your flavor offering as well. Right now we've jumped to, you know, in this quarter, uh, we had about, you know, 15 or so flavors in production in Q1 have now jumped to 30. So pretty big, broad jump um, for us as a company. And that includes both Gage and Cookies branded flour. We want to continue to expand that. You know, continue to expand that, try to get to as many varieties as possible. And yes, of course, you know, that does create a little bit of headaches when it comes to, you know, just supply chain and things along those lines. But it's what the consumer wants, right? It's 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 what people are looking for. You know, everyone's always excited to, you know, try a new flavor, try a new cross or something. And it's um, something that we'll probably focus on in the near term now that we have the cultivation capacity to do it. You know, we'll probably be, when you include our, you know, our contract manufacturer, the number one cultivator in Michigan. And if we can be the number one producer of flour and ensure that we're also you know, the best in terms of variety, it's going to be a really a big win-win situation, I think, for both us and both you know, for the consumer as well. Yeah. And, and to kind of pair that, the brand loyalty with the relationships and the awareness plus in the strategic positioning and being acceptable can really make that kind of a loyalty factor with the consumer long term. And I think you're, you're really nailing that. Yeah, I appreciate that. So biggest misconception in the cannabis space since you started working in it? Guys, I want to talk to you today about one of our new partners, CESC. CESC is a nonprofit organization providing a compelling and complementary alternative. They represent the ability to harness a flexible, collaborative approach to scientific advancements. They are comprised of leading doctors and researchers in the cannabis and cannabinoid science space for almost a decade. Their act first, talk later operating principle has now led to a successful series of disruptive innovations in the cannabis science space. They need your help now. Join them, collaborate with them, or support them. Go to thecesc.org to get involved now. Together, we can change the world. That cannabis is, is, is a commodity. I hate hearing that because it's just so far from the truth, right? They try to, a couple of, you know, have an investor call or 
questions from investors. Some, you know, some, so some will think, oh, it's just a commoditized business. It's like tomatoes. It's so far from the truth. I mean, I think you guys will appreciate this analogy. It's not exactly like the wine industry, but it's quite similar, right? Especially if you're like a true connoisseur of wine, let's say, which I'm not, but from what I've been told, you want to know, okay, where was this, where, where's this wine from? What country? How was it grown? Where was it grown? Was it grown at the base of a volcano? Was it grown at a certain altitude? What grapes were used? What did they do with the grapes after? Did they crush them by hand? Did they crush them with their feet? Did they crush them through a machine? You know, how did they store the wine after? Was it an oak barrel, glass barrel, steel barrel, stainless steel barrel? So there's so many facets to the wine industry. And at least for me, cannabis is quasi-similar, especially for like the true connoisseur, the true refined consumer. And, and yes, not everybody's you know, to that point just yet. But I think the industry continues to grow, continues to you know, gain, gain a fan base across the country that people actually care about these small nuances, right? Is it greenhouse grown? Is it grown outdoor? Is it grown indoor? Uh, what do the post-production process look like? If you grow, let's say, Brian, you grow, you know, let's call it, you were an operator, you grow fantastic cannabis, but you trimmed it extremely poorly. You didn't dry it well. You didn't package it well. You, you know, gave someone a bag of eights, but you included a whole bunch of small little nugs in it. I think just generally that, brand or that, you know, entity or that licensed producer is not going to be well received. So I think there's like so many little steps from the seed all the way to the smoke in this industry that it's just not commoditized in maybe some markets where the supply is extremely, extremely tight, maybe like a place like New Jersey, or maybe a place like, you know, Pennsylvania, where still, you know, supply is really not even coming close to the demand. Sure. You know, you, you can get away with producing just good product, obviously, but you don't really have to focus on the details. In a place like Cali, in a place like Colorado, you know, Michigan, you got to really focus on those details. And, and that's where the industry is going because, you know, we saw in Canada what happened with, you know, people just growing the, the same type of flavors, the same type of way and really having no variety and, and, and nothing special. You saw how the Canadian licensed producers are performing. And I think, you know, I'm not saying that's going to happen in the U.S. It's a totally different beast. But again, I think, you know, U.S. operators need to be, be cognizant of that as, as competition continues to increase. You really have to uh, you really have to have a refined strategy. And again, I'd say that's the number one thing that really annoys me when someone says that you know cannabis is a commoditized business because it's just so far from the truth. And it goes back to exactly what you're saying about the trends in uh, California and how it's going to kind of that ripple effect across the country. I mean, the job that California did in implementing the Appalachian laws and really kind of teeing the whole industry up to kind of mirror something like the wine industry, I think is exactly where, where the whole space is going to go. So I think you're right on point with that. How do we educate the consumer? Like there's so many variables you were just describing, Fabian, but how does a consumer who's kind of curious walks into a dispensary for let's say the first or second time, he's overwhelmed by the 9 million options. Where do they start? Is it on the, the brands? Is it on the blood tenders? Is it a combination of both? How do they get educated on all the characteristics of the plant? Because like you were saying, it is incredible, but there are so many layers to the product. You know, at least from my perspective, especially for the new consumer, you know, edibles, you know what I mean, are always a good introduction. Basically, you know, see how your body reacts, see how you feel, you know what I mean, when you consume that type of product. Obviously, drinks not as popular, but you know potentially another method for for a, a new consumer. Uh, pre rolls, you know, if you want to obviously have a joint, pre rolls are obviously a perfect perfect way to to get introduced to the industry. 
Again, it's something that you really need to cater to to people's tastes. Uh, some people don't want to smoke anything, right? So you have to educate them on the other varieties in terms of consuming. Some are, you know, totally comfortable with uh, with smoking, and obviously you can introduce them to, um, you know, that type of category, and obviously the, the all the flavors that you know you have in a proper way. But I think overall, it's it's really just finding out, you know, what does the consumer want? What are they looking for to start? And then catering to that consumer. And that, that's how we approach, you know, our, our, our new, let's call it the fan base that comes to our brand and says, hey, you know, I'm a, I'm a new user. You know, what, what can I try? You, you try to ease them into it, right? Because the last thing you want, especially, you know, for this industry, is someone to get turned off right away, right? We already have to deal with so much adversity, right? So if we can win over you know, one person at a time and, you know, make sure that they truly, truly are free and, and fully appreciate you know, what this industry has to offer from, not only a personal standpoint, but just generally uh, in terms of job creation, taxes, et cetera. And, you know, just even just easing up on the, on the, on the, on the kind of, let's call it, um, I don't even know how to say, it, even on the regulatory side of things to just make things so much easier for this industry so it can really blossom. We need all the positives we can get. Bill, did you have something to add? I mean, it's already a steep hill that we're climbing as far as uh, social stigma goes that it'd be nice if uh, they could throw us a bone as far as regulatory aspects go as well. You know, it's, it's tough fighting that battle on both fronts. Totally. It's not easy. You know, we already, we already have to deal with so much and, you know, grow in such a constrained environment and it's such a cash heavy business still, right? Like I can't wait for the day to, you know, kind of go into any dispensary you want and, and, and really just put your Amex down or your visa down and just you know be able to purchase the product. I, I think that will even bring some growth um, to the industry as well, just in terms of, again, if someone comes to a dispensary, they have a certain amount in their pocket. And again, not, not to try to entice someone to, to, to spend more than they should, but again, they have a certain amount in their pocket. If they see, you know, oh, wow, you have a new flavor there. I was just going to come here, you know, for my go-to, but I see you have this new flavor. If it's such a cash heavy business, so you're like, okay, well, I don't have, you know, that much cash in my pocket. So the ability, it's just like anything else, right? If you're going to, to buy a, a bottle of wine or, you know, some beer at the, at the corner liquor store, right? If you only had a certain amount in your in your pocket, but you actually wanted to buy something else or try something new to help, you know, expand, you know, you, you, what you're looking for, uh, you can do that easily, right? You can just say, okay, I'm just going to put it on my card. So, you know, these small little nuances people think don't really, you know, affect the industry, but they do. You know, they weigh down on the industry. You know, the lack of access to banking, uh, not you know being able to list on a U.S. recognized exchange. Again, sounds like well, it's more of a stock and capital markets thing. Well, it's like, well, no, not really. It's it's an access to capital thing, right? Get better access to capital for these cannabis companies. The more they can grow, the more jobs they can create, and the bigger and better the industry gets. Everything is harder in cannabis, and I think you perfectly said it. So before we do predictions, we ask all of our guests two questions. You could sum up your experience in the cannabinoid space into one main takeaway or lesson learned to pass on to the next generation. What would that be? Uh, work really, really hard. Work really, really hard because again, it's not the and, and be ready for the challenges. At least in this day and age, right? Like uh, we just talked about the, the you know the challenges of, of of regulations. You know, there's there's a whole variety of operational challenges as well. Um, it's still, you know, still hard to attract, you know, good quality people uh, to the industry. Not, not saying that we don't already have uh, good quality people in this industry from a employment standpoint, but, you know, to really attract, you know, top-notch quality people, you know, people still have this, you know, stigma towards the industry. So it's a little tough, right? So you got to be prepared for the challenges. You got to be prepared for the ups and downs. 
because they're going to be plenty. Um, but if you can stay the course, I think, you know, those that come out on the other side, when hopefully things get a little bit easier for us uh, as companies from, you know, a whole variety of angles, those are going to be the true winners. That's for sure. The last time you consumed any cannabinoids? Uh, <laughs> probably two nights ago, I had an edible before I went to sleep. I find, uh, you know, edibles really help me sleep, especially these days where, you know, things are uh, always high stress, at least for me, being a newly publicly traded company here in Canada. You know, just uh, you got to uh, got to be on top of your game all the time. And sometimes like anyone else, it, it gets to you. So if I have a nice uh, edible 30 minutes before I go to sleep, it usually means I'm going to have a nice sleep, at least for me. Yeah, that you too, my go-to. And as a new father, man, do I miss sleep. So it's nice to hear that, that you're, doing <laughs> you're doing better there. Congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, my, Thank you. my kids are a tad older, but they still wake up bright and early. My son, he's turning two. He, uh, he woke up at 6 a.m. today, so uh, it was a little, little bit of a rough start to the day. Listen, 6 a.m. is like our fourth wake-up. I'm 10 days in, and it's like a two-hour hazing session we're going through. So. Oh, yeah, you got a big hill to climb still. <laughs> yeah, and all, I, and all I see is my my sleeping cannabinoids on my desk, and I'm like, man, would I take one of these in a heartbeat? But then I don't know what would happen. <laughs> You'll sleep for days. My wife will kill me, then that'll be it for exactly, us. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so prediction time. 10 years from now. Which product category will be the biggest by sales? 10 years. Um, I think it's going to be neck and neck between flour and edibles. Yeah, neck and neck between flour and edibles. I think, you know, edibles will continue to continue to gain ground. Not so sure on the drinks. Still not sold on the drinks and beverages. But yeah, no, I think edibles is, is a great category. It's gaining a lot of steam. It's an easy way to consume as well. Very, very easy. Time, time efficient, obviously, as well. I would say very, very, very close, but I still, you know, still love flour. So I'm going to say flour. <laughs> That's my final answer. Kellen? I don't know. It, it's either edibles or, or flour, right? And I think the, the biggest variable in that prediction is going to be how the next generation that comes online views smoking, right? Because I think right now, like, our generation and the generation above us, we cannabis has always been something we've smoked. And so flour will can continue to dominate as we are the main buyers as consumers. But it'll be really interesting to see how the younger generation views smoking in general. I mean, is there going to be a resurgence? If not, and they really focus more on like the wellness aspect and really are health conscious, then I think edibles will take the day no matter what, just from a, an ease of consuming. But in 10 years, I don't know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with flour too. What, what, are, what are your thoughts, Brian? Obviously, Kellen, you know, I'm very, very bullish on the beverage market. I think from a social standpoint, getting together with your friends, consuming an edible, it, it kind of isn't that same feeling of standing around with like a White Claw or a beer. So from a social standpoint, I think the low dose THC beverages are going to just absolutely explode. I think it's also easy to kind of adopt the kind of curious people who are, who are unfamiliar with cannabinoids, but are interested in trying because it's such a mild taste. And I think edibles, why I love them personally, I think they get a bad rap because people sometimes associate bad experiences with them. If they had a brownie in college, which was made by their friend and they had a bad experience, they're likely deterred from trying that again. So I think the beverage market will be really beneficial for people who are migrating and or newly entrants into the space. But also, I think people who are heavy alcohol consumers who are sick of hangovers and are interested in kind of getting a light little buzz, 
if they gravitate towards that, it could be a huge growth area. And sure, flour is here to stay. I think the, the true purists will always do that. And I, I don't think that category is going to get hurt at all. But I think the beverage market will just absolutely explode. And obviously, I'm very bullish on that side. A little mix of a cocktail, a little THC and alcohol cocktail at the bar. That sounds like a really dangerous thing. <laughs> So Fabian, before we wrap, where can our listeners get in touch? We'll tag Gage and all in the show notes, but if they want to get involved and learn more about your company specifically, where can they, they learn more? Yeah, look, I mean, follow us on social media for sure on our Instagram page. You know, we have close to 30,000 followers, have a, a big broad network. We put a lot of time and effort into our social media. Um, really, it's a great place to also see you know, what we've come out with in terms of, you know, new flower, new, new flavors, et cetera, and new product lines. So that, you know, just follow us on Gage Cannabis. Uh, go to our website, gagecannabis.com as well. Again, that's gagecannabis.com. If you have any investor, you know, questions, email us at ir at gageusa.com. Again, that's ir at gageusa.com. Obviously, we trade on the Canadian Securities Exchange under the symbol G-A-G-E. And on the OTC in the U.S. on the pink sheets for now, under the symbol G-A-E-G-F. We appreciate you taking the time and looking forward to seeing you migrate to the East Coast and continuing to dominate in Michigan. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks a lot for having me on. Thanks for the time. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, my name is Leah Babrudi, and I'm the founder and host of Cannachicks Podcast, where I discuss cannabis, psychedelics, and other natural medicines. I not only interview people who use them as treatment for different conditions, but also the entrepreneurs who share their knowledge on how they built their businesses. If this sounds interesting to you, give my show a listen. I'm sure you'll learn something that'll surprise you.